Hello for those of you entering into the Zoom room and joining us today. You're here for um, the CBRL webinar on women's activism in the Levant. We're just going to give it a, a minute for people to um, enter. Um, my name is Carol Palmer and I am the director of CBRL in Amman, Jordan, speaking to you from Amman today. Um, and it's going to be my pleasure to introduce uh, with my colleague in Jerusalem, Tawfiq Haddad, East Jerusalem, today's roundtable event uh, with Isla Jad, uh, Nicola Pratt, and Sara Ababne. And we're coming you, to you today from Amman, East Jerusalem, and Ramallah via uh, CBRL London. And it's fantastic to be able to start off today um, uh, 2021's uh, webinar series with CBRL with such a popular and uh, topical webinar on, again, women's activism in the Levant for those of you joining us. And this is going to be a slightly different event in that it's a round table between our three speakers. I'm going to carry on talking while people are still entering um, to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, CBRL, Council for British Research in the Levant. For those of you who may not be familiar with our organization, uh, CBRL is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct, support, and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant or Levantine Middle East. We're actually uh, part of the British Academy's seven or eight British International Research Institutes uh, for which we receive a grant and aid to continue our operations in the region. But we're always grateful to the other organizations and individuals who support us in various ways through membership, through participating in our events as you are today. Um, we run a number of events and uh, additional research projects um, in, our, in our bases um, in Amman and East Jerusalem. Um, but the, really the foci of our activities um, and what many will know us for are our institutes in the region. We have the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem and the British Institute in Amman or just Amman Institute um, from where we're both joining you today. And um, I'm based in Amman and my colleague who's going to be chairing uh, Taufik Haddad is director of the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem. And um, we hope that you'll enjoy today's roundtable webinar and that you will join us for future events um, in 2021. Um, also to say that we have a back catalogue now of webinars that we started in 2020. And um, if you're not already on our mailing list, um, please do join us for information about future events. Now I'm going to hand over to uh, Taufik to introduce today's roundtable event and our speakers. Thank you very much. So thank you, Carol, for that introduction. And thank you to our panelists today for uh, making themselves available. 
Uh, I think the uh, overwhelming uh, interest that we see online for this event speaks to uh, how much interest there is out there uh, and uh, people searching out more. And I don't think that's just a consequence of the fact that this is 10 years to the uh, since the quote unquote Arab uprisings began, but also all our three scholars who we have assembled today bring a wealth of knowledge of their respective uh, uh, areas of expertise and uh, we, for those who, who may be interested we have had over 340 different uh, people who signed up for this zoom chat with uh, or what zoominar which uh, I think is a record for us uh, and uh, we're very happy to bring uh, this to the public uh, to, to public uh, viewing. So without further ado, and uh, uh, allow me to introduce my panelists today. We have, uh, well, firstly, let me say today will be a, a roundtable event where we'll have three different uh, scholars uh, speaking on the subject of women's activism in the Levant. Uh, we have prepared four separate questions for all three uh, panelists. And uh, hopefully that should run around uh, up to 50 minutes to 60 minutes. And then uh, uh, each, each panelist, of course, will be asked to respond uh, and give roughly four to five minutes uh, for an answer, focusing on their, their area of expertise and, and anything they see relevant beyond that. Um, and then we have half an hour earmark for uh, additional questions from the audience. So please uh, make take your mental notes. Hope you have a cup of tea beside you so you can stay uh, warm and uh, listen to a very exciting uh, coming uh, roundtable. So as far as uh, our upcoming uh, the speakers, uh, we have uh, first uh, Dr. Islah Jad, who's an associate professor at Birzeit University. Uh, it looks like she is in Victoria Gardens right now, but she is actually in Birzeit, or actually in Ramallah, or if, uh, yes, Ramallah area, shall we say. Uh, Dr. Jad is one of the founders of the Institute of Women's Studies at Birzeit, as well as the PhD program in social sciences, and is also a founder of the Women's Affairs National Coalition in, in, the, in the OPT. Her research focuses on Palestinian women's movements, gender and development in the Arab world, and women's political participation. Her book, Palestinian Women's Activism, uh, which was published in 2018 by Syracuse University Press, was a shortlist for the Palestine Book Award in 2019. Our second panelist today will be Dr. Nicola Pratt, who is joining us today from, if I'm not mistaken, Warwick, or at least the UK, shall we say, or cyberspace. <laughs> Dr. Pratt is a reader in international politics of the Middle East, at the University of Warwick. She teaches and researches on the international politics of the Middle East with a particular interest in feminist and decolonial approaches as well as politics from below. She's an author of uh, the recently published book, Embodying Geopolitics, Generations of Women's Activism in Egypt, Jordan and Lebanon, which recently came out from University of California Press in 2020. Uh, our final panelist today is Dr. Sara Ababne. Dr. Ababne is an assistant professor of the, and the head of the Social and Political Studies Unit at the Center for Strategic Studies at the University of Jordan. Her research focuses on gender, class, and struggles for social and economic justice. And her most recent article is entitled, The Time to Question, Rethink, and Popularize the Notion of 
women's issues, between quotation marks, lessons from Jordan's popular and labor movement from 2006 to now. And that was published in the Journal of International Women's Studies and came out just this past year in 2020. So uh, look up our panelists online. Uh, and uh, I might also add that this is exclusively being brought, broadcast on Zoom. Uh, it is not being broadcast elsewhere at this moment. So uh, make, take your notes on the side if you need them. So I'm gonna start off with the first question that I'm going to direct to Dr. Islah Jad, uh, but will equally be directed at, at the other panelists uh, and hopefully should form the basis of the discussion and the questions later on. So the first question that I'm asking all panelists will be, can you provide an overview of your research on women's activism, including the major findings and arguments? Take it away, Islah. Uh, and please uh, get rid of your mute. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> thank you, Taufi, and uh, thanks to Carol, uh, Carol and uh, uh, Nicola for organizing such an uh, stimulating uh, panel. Uh, I am honored to be part of it, and I'm so happy to be one of the participants. Uh, to answer the question, let me start by saying that uh, the, the, the conclusions uh, or the uh, the arguments I made uh, basically came out of my own activism within the Palestinian women's movement. Uh, what I, uh, uh, I argued and also concluded that uh, the links and intersections of colonialism, nationalism, Islamism, and uh, feminism in contemporary Palestine are all connected. Uh, so this is the general context uh, from which we can draw uh, some conclusions that colonialism affects a great deal the gender regime existing in any particular country and in particular in Palestine. Uh, colonial, colonialism affects the class formation, it affects uh, the labor market, and it affects uh, level of education to who uh, to whom to give education, uh, to whom to deny uh, or uh, prevent from getting uh, education. So uh, colonialism is very important. And I'm raising this point that might sound, you know, a bit out of context and old, but when we see occupations taking places in uh, other countries around us in Iraq and uh, in Syria, in Libya and uh, in other countries. So we might bring back the question of colonialism and occupation again when we talk about the context in which women activism uh, take place. The uh, other point I, uh, uh, I tackled also about it was the tension and conflicts within Palestinian national, nationalism that uh, followed class and region and gender lines uh, fr from which you know, uh, women were supported to join the national movement and also constrained by the same national movement when their gender issues were ignored, but women had to, uh, through activism, uh, uh, they had to take in hands you know, what are the issues they need to push forward and also uh, uh, to tackle with the, the two agendas, the national agenda and the social uh, agenda. So nationalism was very supportive, 
as constraining in the same uh, time. Uh, the third argument uh, I, I, I developed was about the uh, liberal notion uh, on <clears throat> liberal notion on uh, NGOs and uh, uh, the boundaries and the power of uh, civil society in affecting uh, uh, a radical change in our uh, societies. So through my work, I showed the limitation of this liberal claim that NGOs are more uh, inclusive, more close to the, to the uh, constituencies, uh, more um, uh, movable, uh, more ener energetic. Uh, I showed through my work that that was not the case and I showed how negatively uh, the injuization process that followed the Oslo Agreement uh, affected the uh, homegrown women's movement and a homegrown uh, version of feminism uh, that combined the national issues with the uh, feminist uh, issues. Uh, and the, the last argument I made about these dichotomies between uh, conservative uh, and liberals, between uh, traditional and modernist, uh, between Islamist and secularist. And I tried to, uh, to show the intermingling uh, between the, these concepts and how each one constitutes the, uh, the other and how the Islamist in the Palestinian context learned a great deal from the sort of activism uh, discourses and uh, 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 some sort of gender ideology from the so-called uh, Palestinian uh, nationalist secularists to make a space for themselves uh, and uh, dominate the activism in the civil society in the face of the Oslo, uh, uh, after Oslo uh, Palestinian uh, authority. So I just tried to show that Islamism is not out of context, you know, in the Palestinian uh, national struggle and how they nationalize uh, Islam and how they Palestinize, you know, their activism to suit the Palestinian uh, uh, context and deconstruct this dichotomy between Islamists and uh, secularists. And I stop here. Well, thank you. You certainly said uh, a lot there and uh... Yeah, very, very, very insightful. Thank you, Dr. Islah. I'll take the question now to Dr. Pratt. Where are you, Dr. Pratt? Are you there? Looks. Ooh, where'd she go, Nicola? Well, maybe something happened to her. I will use the opportunity now, we'll try and get her back online uh, to direct the question at uh, Dr. Ababne. Are you there, Sara? I am. Fantastic. Go ahead, take it away. The question, can you provide an overview of your research, including some of the major findings and arguments? Sure. So first of all, I really want to thank everyone for coming. I know for some of you from the US, um, it's really, really early and um, thank you so much um, so my research in terms of women's activism has been kind of around two, two themes. On the one hand, looking at the Jordanian women's movement, and on the other hand, looking at social movements, other movements, labor movements, um, who have a, a very high number of women. 
And, um, and the questions that come out of that research for me are firstly, how do we understand women's rights activism? What's when we say women's issues, which in Arabic in the singular, what do we usually mean when we say that? Um, how do we define it based on whose experience, who's being included, who's being excluded? Um, and how has this kind of, th this discourse around women's rights, how has it been depoliticized? How have women been seen as separate from their communities? How have women's issues become these separate issues uh, versus national community or community issues? So uh, in, in like my, my, the activism, I guess, in my, in my research is kind of trying to repoliticize uh, women's issues and bring it back to kind of, yeah, the more radical, I guess. And I'll stop here because I want to say more to the other questions. <laughs> okay, Sara. Well, it, it appears that uh, Dr. Pratt is uh, not online or is having some kinds of difficulties. So uh, we won't wait for her. Oh, hang on, she just popped up. Nicola, do you hear us? I can't, yeah. Yeah? Sorry, I had, had uh, internet problems. Okay. But I've moved closer to the router now, so hopefully it'll be okay. Bless, just in time. <laughs> yeah, just in time for my spot. Just in time, just in time. Yeah, yeah we were going to have to ad-lib something. No, it's all good. Uh, so actually, Sara filled in for you the last uh, minute or two. Uh, oh, and now yeah. the question is to, to you, poised to you. Can you provide yeah. an overview of your research and uh, some of its findings and arguments? Sure, okay. So... Um, I just before I start, I just want to say uh, to tell everybody um, about the image that's been used to advertise or publicize this event. Um, the image is uh, courtesy of Marwa Majar, who's a really uh, talented artist um, who is uh, based, I think, between uh, Jordan and, uh, and the Gulf. Um, anyway, so this is one of her paintings and you can see lots of other images by her um, on her Instagram account. And it's also an image that she's allowed me to use for the cover of my um, recent book. So thank you, Marwa. Um, okay, so with regards to the question, I mean, in the past, um, I've worked on women's activism in Iraq, but I'm not gonna talk about that today. Um, I'm just gonna focus on the more recent work I've done that's the basis for my recently published book um, on um, which is on women's activism in Egypt, Jordan and Lebanon. Uh, so this this book is based on personal narratives of women activists speaking about their lives and their activism um, and the book seeks to link the personal to the geopolitical using women activists experiences as lenses through which to understand the gendered dimensions of geopolitics. So it's an intervention into not just um, gender studies, but also critical geopolitics or critical international relations. Um, so uh, I collected uh, over a hundred um, narratives, um, or a hundred, Let's say I did 100 interviews with women who, um, from both from Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, um, and these women were from diverse fields of activism—not just women's rights activism, but also 
working in the fields of um, welfare and charitable work, political activism, trade unionism and NGOs. I try to interview both secular oriented and Islamist women. In uh, Lebanon, I interviewed not only Lebanese women, but also Palestinian women. And in Jordan, uh, many of the women that I interviewed were of Palestinian descent. So through, the through their stories, the book maps the changes in women's activism, as well as the shifts in women's subjectivities and identities over time, um, particularly in relation to significant geopolitical turning points. So the turning geopolitical turning points that are the focus of the book are uh, decolonization, the Arab uh, defeat in the 1967 war, the end of the Cold War, um, and of course the Arab uprisings and their aftermath. So on the one hand, uh, I try to uncover stories that remain marginalized, um, if not totally absent in much of the scholarly literature on geopolitics in the Middle East and North Africa, such as the important contribution of women's unpaid work in the fields of social welfare and humanitarian work, and the importance of this unpaid work to post-independent state building. But I also point out the ways in which geopolitical upheavals, such as the 1967 war and the Arab uprisings, uh, reshaped women's subjectivities uh, and provided openings for women to challenge dominant gender norms through their involvement in revolutionary and radical movements. Um, I don't treat personal narratives merely as objective historical sources that may present previously hidden or marginalized histories. Uh, drawing on the work of feminist historians such as Luisa Pasolini and Molly Andrews, I use personal narratives to reveal the meanings of past events and in this way to uncover the relationship between the self and memory, between the present and the past, between the individual and the collective, and particularly between the individual and the wider socio-political and geopolitical context. So this is a really important um, finding from the book, which is the, you know, the significance of context in, in understanding women's activism. I contextualize women's narrative in relation to post-colonial state projects of national sovereignty and modernization and their gendered underpinnings, which have their roots in experiences of colonial domination and resistance to colonial discourses. Examine, by examining women's activism over several decades, um, my research has historicized the relationship between women's agency, gender and the geopolitical, revealing how a particular configuration of space and power in a specific historical period is not only contingent and temporary, but is naturalized through a specific gender order. So women, the narratives of women activists are really important in revealing the gendered and spatialized relations of power. And that these, relation, that these gendered and spatialized relations of power also shape women's activism. So the women, so my overall argument is really about the importance of seeing women's activism as uh, an, a form of embodied geopolitics, that women activists are geopolitical actors. 
um, and that um, understanding um, women's activism within that geopolitical context is very important for understanding wider contemporary politics and international relations in the Middle East. Thank you, Nicola, for that. Okay, uh, a, a lovely overview of uh, your work there and some of your arguments. Uh, we're going to turn to the second question, which uh, tries to address the question of what the main challenges that women activists in the Levant face based upon your, your research. And we'll, we'll do the same, uh, same uh, with Islah starting off, followed by Sara, then Nicola. Go ahead, Islah. Uh, take your mute off. Uh, thank you, Taufi. Uh, talking about challenges, we are facing so many challenges, in fact. First of all, uh, is the uh, a question about, uh, you know, the relationship between activism, women's activism, and the occupying power. And the question is, can an occupying power destroys a whole country and liberate women uh, in this country. So the, the issue that or the challenge is how women could play a more active role in uh, fighting uh, and in uh, struggling against uh, occupation powers in the region, uh, stopping wars uh, and conflict, uh, and here I, uh, I have in mind, you know, the uh, sort of activism of women in uh, Latin America, especially in Chile and Argentina, when they, uh, uh, you know, in the face of dictatorship, they formed these uh, groups as mothers uh, to stop the killing and kidnapping and illegal imprisonments of their son. We, we don't have this in our region yet. So the second point is about how to challenge, you know, uh, the women, women economic marginalization in our region, uh, which I see the core reason for women dependency on men in our uh, area. We still uh, have very low uh, level of economic participation in the region. And uh, we have this contradictory uh, phenomena that women get more education and get more in, unemployed unemployment in the labor uh, market. So this is the second challenge. Uh, the third <clears throat> is how uh, women's activism move from uh, uh, the one issue or the few issues uh, on uh, uh, concerning women's uh, interests and, and rights to uh, join mainstream resistance and activism. I mean, how to move from issues, uh, you know, related to women to a main, uh, mainstream uh, social uh, movement. And I have in mind now the focus on, you know, violence against women and the, which I call the one issue activism, you know, uh, how to link these uh, different issues to uh, a comprehensive uh, resistance and struggle to uh, gain uh, uh, women's power within the mainstream uh, resistance in, in, in our countries. Uh, the third, the uh, <clears throat> Uh, uh, another issue is uh, how 
to uh, link women's activisms and their uh, struggle for their rights with other issues. I'm so happy to hear more from Sarah about how to link women's uh, rights is issues with workers' uh, rights, with teachers' rights, with peasants' rights. We, we, we still feel that we are in separated compartments and we cannot uh, uh, realize the old slogan of tout soutien in the Marxism in the, in the past. So we still fragmented uh, around, you know, uh, separate issues uh, to struggle uh, for. Uh, of course, one of the major challenges for uh, women's activism in the region also is how to bridge the gap between urban and rural divides, especially with the privatization of most of the uh, uh, public education and the elite gets private education, which is very up-to-date and very advanced in, uh, in its material infrastructure and its content while the majority of the people are left to uh, deprived and poor public uh, schooling can, that can barely give the minimum of education for the masses. Uh, another challenge uh, <clears throat> is the, uh, how to engage actively and productively with conservative groups and discourses. And I say conservative groups in general not necessarily coming from any uh, religious uh, religious groups or whatever, because conservatism is also among you know non-religious uh, uh, people. And uh, the final uh, issue is how to root the universal packages of women's rights uh, within uh, you know local uh, within the local context and be part in the same time of a transnational feminist movement, uh, especially in the South. This is how I see the challenges. Thank you, Asla. I'm going to turn to Sara now. Uh, I know you actually gave uh, quite a short answer last time, so I'll give you a couple of extra minutes this time, but uh, let's be on point. Go ahead, take it away. Thank you. So if you had asked me the question, what are the main challenges? So I'm going to focus on Jordan in this question. And if you had asked me about this question, what are the main challenges facing Jordanian women's rights activists uh, in the 1950s, I would have said um, security um, services harassment, potentially kicking, um, getting kicked out of one's job, um, and, um, and in the worst case scenario, death. Uh, fortunately, that's no longer the case for women's rights activists in Jordan. However, I think that's part of the problem. Um, part of the problem is that there has been such a rift in bet between uh, women's rights activists and popular activists, um, uh, workers, uh, the, the w people, the women and men who went onto the streets uh, in 2011-2012 in the, in the Jordanian popular movement. And what I want to look at now is why this, there is this rift. So if you look at the literature, the literature will say the rift is due to two main things. The way the women's movement has evolved historically and most, the, the biggest kind of shaping factor of this women's movement has been the state. So state interference, state surveillance, uh, the way the state acted with the women's rights act, uh, movement. And that is usually seen as the main reason why women's rights activists or, or the women's movement has kind of moved 
the way it has. But I actually think there's another thing that is probably not, th th those two reasons are there and they have impacted the women's movement, but there's actually something more, which is discourse. Discourse, there has been a shift in discourse, not just in Jordan, but internationally, and how we see women's issues and how we see women's rights. And that is what I wanna unpack right now. I'm gonna share with you, I hope this doesn't, I hope I can do this without uh, too much. Okay, share this, let's see, I'm gonna, yeah. So, um, so if we look at the discourse, I think the discourse, there are three elements that have changed. Uh, firstly, how we define women's issues, and I'm going to unpack that in a second. Then what Islah Jad calls NGOization, the NGOization of the women's movement. And finally, looking at women's rights and seeing them through, through the lens of development. And I'm going to unpack all three now. So first, let's start with what are women's issues? Adaya and Mar'a. Generally, when we speak about women's issues, we're talking about gender-based violence, legal discrimination, political disempowerment, and economic disempowerment. All of these are usually seen in a very individualistic way. So gender-based violence is domestic violence. It is not the violence of having, not having adequate schooling. And uh, where the majority of Jordanians say that when they went to school in the winter, they could not feel their fingers from the cold. And of course, the boy child and the girl child have been affected very differently by that in terms of the violence that is inflicted on the boy child's body in these public schools. And in terms of the girl child, often, you know, what happens to her body not being able to go to the bathroom for 12 hours or for eight hours in the day. So but that type of violence is not part of how gender-based violence is understood. Gender-based violence is generally understood as domestic violence against women. Mostly, sometimes the boy child, but mostly women and the girl child. Then, of course, there's legal discrimination, which is basically the, basically the personal status law, family law. And when we speak about political disempowerment, we generally mean that there aren't enough women in the political institutions. We don't talk about democratization in a bigger way. We don't talk about wider issues. We talk about very specifically the lower house, which for anyone who knows Jordan knows that the lower house does not have that much that much power. I've written economic disempowerment small in a smaller font because it often doesn't feature. It's, it's, it's something that sometimes features. And when it features, again, it is not structural. Uh, we're talking about individual. So in a household, do women have to give their salaries to their husbands or fathers? That's the kind of violence, economic violence that we talk about when, when it's on this list. So women's issues, again, to summarize, is a list, an invisible list that most organizations working on women's rights have in their heads. And, when, and, when, and then they'll fund certain things based on this list. So how did we come up with this list? Let me now kind of look uh, historically at how the, the, the women's movement has evolved uh, and how it has shifted in terms of discourse. If we look at the beginning of the women's movement, the, the, the recorded beginning, which is usually from 44 to 50, we look at, we see um, a mainly elite uh, group of women based in Amman who are very close to the palace, uh, upper class women who work with mothers mostly, and it's mostly charity work. And of course, discursively, this is very similar to what was happening around the globe, uh, whether in North America or in Europe uh, around the beginning of the 20th century. Then when we come into the 50s, 
Uh, I call it the radical years. We, of course, we have decolonization, we have nationalism, and the Jordanian women's movement, which was very close to the Palestinian women's movement, uh, really worked on 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 national independence, on um, on women getting the right to vote, being part of the nation, mostly pan-Arab nation, but also you know being able to vote, being able to fight. And together with everyone else, when martial law was declared in Jordan in 1957, the women's, the women's groups were shut down as well, and they had to go underground because they were seen as a political threat. Now, in the 1970s, we have a, um, um, a, a, an increased interest again in women's rights because in 1971, there was the declaration that the year 1975 was going to be International Women's Year. And of course, Jordan wanted to appear to be at the forefront of you know, the state's fight for women's rights. So women's organizations were allowed to organize again. And the state started taking an active interest. And this is where we have like the entrance of state feminism. Uh, but with that, there was a, a, a de-radicalization. I want to say more than that, a depoliticization of women's rights in that we had initially in Jordan, women's groups had to sign up with the Ministry of Interior, which is the ministry that is the real kind of where real politics happens. And what happens once the state starts taking interest, and of course, this is again happening globally, this is not something that is particular to Jordan, is that we then have the Ministry of Social Affairs, later the Ministry of Social Development, becoming the umbrella organization. So what happens is there's a shift in understanding women's rights and struggles from one of politics to one of the social. And this is a significant shift. The, the later sh the shift afterwards that happens is in, uh, from 1989 to, 19, uh, to 2018, I want to say roughly, which is when, so 1989 is when Jordan quote unquote democratizes, but then, um, you know, at, at the same time globally, this is the end of the Cold War and kind of the the, um, the victory of capitalism and the emergence of NGOs. Um, and this is what leads to kind of, I think the phase that we're still very much in, which is NGOization. And I want to now unpack NGOization as defined by Islah Jad um, to really, so we can understand what I'm talking about. So Islah Jad writes, NGOization denotes the process through which issues of collective concern are transformed into projects. So the first thing that happens is that we have a, a collective issue, a national issue, a communal issue, something that affects all of us. And that is compartmentalized and is made small and is made into a tiny project. Into projects in isolation from the general context in which they're impl implemented and without taking into consideration economic, social and political factors affecting these projects. So let me give you an example from Palestine. Palestine, we know a lot of organizations, children's rights organizations work um, on with children who have been jailed uh, in Israeli jails and they provide post-traumatic um, relief, counseling, etc. Now, this is important because these children have been traumatized, but these organizations do not go and say there has to, the, the problem is the occupation, the occupation, settler colonialism has to stop. They basically, what they do is they deal with the, with the wounds. There are wounds, these wounds have to be tended, but they don't deal with what causes these wounds, with what actually is constantly you know, reopening these wounds. Let me go back to the quote. 
it also denotes a shift in women's activism from volunteerism to dependence on foreign funding. So we're not talking about something that I do because I believe in it and that I do as part of what I, you know, um, without pay. We're talking about something that is, that becomes, uh, is initiated by foreign funding. A shift in the personnel dealing with women's empowerment from grassroots ruler and refugee cadres to middle-class urban elites of professionals. So we're not talking about the people who are affected, who are leading this, but we're talking about professionals, people the likes of me who come in with Western education, who have the right credentials, who come in as experts and who come and solve the problem, the mathematical problem. So this is one of the things that happened discursively in terms of how we conceptualize women's rights, but on, and also then led to how we practice it on the ground. This then also leads to something else and is part of a wider phenomenon, which is basically seeing women's rights or seeing the problem of women as a problem of development. What does that mean? That means that I'm not no longer saying, I'm no longer talking about women's rights. I'm no longer talking about structures that are affecting women. What I'm saying now is there's a problem in a particular community, in a particular society, because they are underdeveloped. They are not developed enough. Their culture, their religion, something is not right and needs to be maybe, you know, it needs to be developed. So the problem is with the community itself and mostly men in the community. So because of this culture, because of this religion, these men in this, these communities often oppress the women in these communities. So what happens with this development framework is firstly, we turn the flashlight around and we blame communities for their own predicament uh, without looking at any structural effect. But then we also blame the men in these communities for the oppression of the women in these communities and we pit them against each other. So women's issues become divorced from men's issues uh, or from wider community issues. So this, so this, if you go back to saying, why were women's rights organizations not there in 2011, 2012, protesting on the streets uh, with everyone else in Jordan? It is because these people who are protesting, people from refugee camps, people from villages, these kind of men, who are protesting and women, they are seen as the patriarchs who are oppressing women. So they're actually seen as what these women's rights activists want to resist. And this is basically, I think that, so the discursive really shows us how we, to, leads us to the biggest problem, which also Slachjad just talked about, which is we cannot conceptualize wider national issues in terms of women's rights, we cannot gender them. We're not able to, the discourse doesn't allow us to. And I'll stop here. Thank you, Sara. Okay, uh, now turning to Dr. Nicola. Uh, judge, based on your book, can you give us some insight as well on uh, some of the greatest challenges uh, that women activists in the Levant face today? Or maybe actually uh, because you have a historical perspective, you might want to yeah. add that too. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think the, the question did, did also point to sort of the, the historical have faced, but never mind. <laughs> to, um, to, just to follow on from Sarah, uh, I think, you know, the process of change in the Jordanian women's movement that she has oh. identified from through different periods 
um, is something that also um, resonates with what I found. Um, and I think what I would say though is it's really, I think it's also really important to understand why that happened. And in particular, um, I mean, if we're looking at the, because similar, similar processes have happened in women's movements across the region, um, as so Isla has demonstrated in her work on NGOization of the women's movement in the Arab world. Um, and, and I think, you know, th these changes were, were embedded within particular uh, geopolitical um, contexts and, 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 and sort of geopolitical shifts that were happening. Um, and in particular, this, for example, in the 1970s, uh, initially there was, um, after the 1967 war, initially there was a, a sort of flourishing radical activism very much tied to the uh, PLO um, in, and, the, and you know, the, the Palestinian national movement had a very important role um, in mobilizing um, in particular young women, um, Palest young women in the Palestinian refugee camps, um, but, also, uh, uh, but also women more, more broadly. Uh, and then the reaction against that, I mean, there was a strong reaction at the level of the, not just the Jordanian regime, but, um, you know, more widely across the region and internationally to defeat these radical movements uh, in, in Lebanon, it ended in a civil war. Uh, well, and there was also conflict in Jordan. Um, and this had a really uh, profound impact, I found, on um, women's activism because many women became um, uh, demobilized, if you like, uh, as a result of the huge repression again, um, of the Palestinian national movement and the associated uh, leftist and other radical nationalist movements that uh, were around in that time. Um, and it, it's partly, um, and, and that, that repression not only impacted on women's activism, but it impacted on um, social movements in general. So that, that de-linking that Sarah talked about, the de-linking of women's movements from other popular movements occurred not because there was some sort of strategic choice to, amongst activists to do that, but popular movements themselves were in abeyance um, and therefore uh, women, you know, women activists who were associated with those movements became, um, well, they, they became isolated because they were no longer, or that these radical movements had been suppressed. Um, and it's really, I guess, a, a testament to the resilience of women's activism that despite this wider political repression in society, women were nonetheless able to uh, continue their activism. And of course, this is also where it intersects then with the changes at the international level at the end of the Cold War and this sort of uh, new consensus around women's rights and the Beijing um, conference. Um, uh, but the other thing I would say is that the, in the interviews that I did, also many of the women 
from that sort of leftist backgrounds who were involved in radical movements in the 1970s and 80s, they also abandoned, uh, to, to the degree uh, that they were perhaps working underground, they abandoned a lot of those uh, movements and parties because of the lack of attention given by male leadership to women's issues. So there was both a process of political repression that pushed women um, out of these movements, well, largely because they started to become so weak, but also the problem was in in these movements themselves was also a factor that pushed women uh, to, to focus, to start to focus more on, on women's issues um, but of course, as uh, Sarah has uh, very eloquently uh, discussed in her presentation, the, um, that, that discourse has become, uh, you know, that discourse that emerged in the post-Cold War era was, was a very depoliticized discourse. Um, I think I've probably run out of time, haven't I, Telfi? Sure, sure. Don't worry, don't worry. Uh, but uh, good points. Lots of very interesting points, but lots of intersections, uh, and we're getting a very nuanced, rich picture that's sort of emerging here. We're going to turn to our third question of the panel today, which has to do with what, what uh, our panelists feel are the most important achievements of uh, women's activists in the Levant. Uh, take it away, Isla. <laughs> Actually, put on your yeah. mic. There you go. Uh, Thank you, Taufi. Uh, if we go back to what Qasim Amin, you know, in the turn uh, of the 1920, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, was uh, advocating for women, he was asking for education and women to be part of the public space uh, and to be treated, you know, as a, an able person. Uh, an able mind, you know, uh, and provide their societies with, with their, you know, capabilities. So after almost a century now, after Qasim Amin, we can say that women in uh, our region achieve very good level of education in most of our countries, uh, even though some Arab countries still have high percentage, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, illiterate, illiterate women. So uh, number one achievement would be education. Uh, number two will be, you know, uh, breaking the stereotypes that men can do, women cannot. Uh, so we can see women uh, pioneers in many fields of professions in, uh, in uh, communication and media, in engineering, in medicine, in different fields that, you know, uh, these pioneers broke the stereotype about women, uh, you know, that they cannot do uh, most of uh, men's professions. Uh, so we have images of women uh, in all the in all the fields, sports, uh, different economic activities, uh, uh, politicians, etc. Uh, what we achieved also is a, a huge number of organizations uh, working to uh, support uh, other women in different fields. 
yes, we might, you know, uh, conceptualize uh, some organizations in different ways as uh, charitable or as NGOs or whatever, uh, <clears throat> but we have uh, uh, lots of women uh, who were also pioneers as much as the social constraints sometimes allow them, uh, you know, who provided an, uh, an uh, 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 vital assistance uh, to women in the field of education, in uh, medical support, uh, psychological support. Uh, so we have women uh, volunteering and pioneering uh, in different uh, volunteerism uh, or activities out of uh, volunteerism. Uh, and here I cannot imagine, for, for, uh, for, for, for example, the Palestinian society after 1948, when you have uh, hundreds of uh, orphans, you know, lost you from their parents in the streets or uh, just abandoned, you know, uh, children. Uh, you know, many many women uh, came, you know, at the forefront to provide vital uh, and important support for these children and, and sometimes to their parents uh, and their families too. Uh, the last point, which is not very, you know, uh, uh, you know, very um, stable, I can say that we can witness some sort of political presence uh, uh, to, um, to some women, uh, but as Sarah, you know, mentioned earlier, uh, with the prevailing, you know, uh, despotism in our region, uh, women still in this uh, uh, political arena uh, are seen as something to beautify an, an ugly uh, system. So we do have uh, lots of women uh, politically uh, active, some of them uh, are bought up by the uh, dictatorships. Some uh, are in the presence of these dictators. Uh, and some are, uh, you know, uh, volunteering against all, uh, all odds. But the idea is that women see themselves as uh, political actors. And they do try, <clears throat> you know, to uh, sustain this uh, activism as much as their time and tasks allow them, and also the context of democracy or lack of democracy that is uh, prevailing in our uh, region. These are the most important uh, achievements I can speak about. Thank you, Islah. Uh, moving on to Sara, if you'd like to speak to the uh, most important achievements in the Jordanian context. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's very, very similar. I was going to start with the same things if we think about um, uh, education, uh, health. Um, I mean, we have gender pari uh, parity in terms of education in Jordan. In fact, when it comes to university education, we have more women who are university educated than men. Uh, now, this is not just because of women's rights activists, of course. The state actually has uh, has played a big role in this too. And there are some benefits to, to state feminism. 
um, or gender mainstreaming. Um, uh, but the women's movement has also worked um, a lot uh, in terms of, of course, in terms of uh, the wars 48, but also more recently in terms of legal reform, um, building shelters for, uh, for survivors of gender-based violence, uh, providing free legal aid, something that is not a right in Jordan. And um, a lot of people uh, suffer from not being ha having access to, uh, working with women in prison, um, uh, supporting uh, female uh, parliamentarians. But most of all, and I think this is the kind of the important point, is that there is now an entire sector, um, there's a lobbying group for women's issues where otherwise there would be, you know, th there would be nobody to actually say, where, where are the women, where's gender? So on that level, there, is a there has been a lot of work. Um, also in terms of the kind of community-based organizations that are all over. And I am generally critical of, you know, the funding of them, et cetera. But I've, through my research, I've had um, interviewees say to me, look, these organizations have changed my life. I have been able to work. I have been able to find myself through these organizations. And I think we need to remember that. And I think this is something that it is easy to criticize. And there are definitely things to criticize, but, um, it is also important to mend the wounds. Um, even when you can't get rid of whoever is inflicting the wounds, somebody needs to mend them. And I think the women's movement in Jordan has been doing this and have been, you know, and have been kind of lobbying for women. And again, I'm gonna stop now because I wanna say more uh, in the last, for the last question. Thank you. Thank you, Sara. Nicola, your thoughts? Okay. Great. So I think I'd begin by saying that um, the the question of achievement, um, it does sort of speak to this narrative that we often want to hold on to as one of progress. Um, and, and, you know, we, we want to be able to uh, celebrate progress. And I think that um, if you look at women's activism over sort of a long historical trajectory, and you also think about women's activism as having effects on multiple scales. So um, it's not just that women's activism can um, have impacts on gender relations, or it can have impacts on the state, um, but rather that it can have um, there are, so there are multiple scales and, and they can be differential impacts at those scales. So I think um, I would, so what my, what I've tried to do in my work is to caution against a narrative of, um, uh, if you like, um, progress, achievement, um, or to see things in binary terms, you know, either something's a success or an achievement, or it's a failure, or because um, the um, because of the way in which women's activism, I see it as having um, two elements, if you like, to it. There's the discursive element of women's activism in term the the types of discourses that are adopted by women in or the way in which women frame um, their activist um, objectives. And Sarah's presentation uh, focused a lot on, you know, sort of uh, post-Cold War women's rights discourse. Um, the other element of women's activism that I think is also really important is actually women's 
embodied presence in the public sphere. And the reason for that is because, um, first of all, historically, uh, state, uh, first of all, anti-colonial nationalist movements and then post-colonial state building projects uh, put um, a big uh, premium, if you like, a big emphasis on women's visibility in the public sphere as a marker of national modernity. And, and therefore that's why, uh, for example, you have state feminism. That's one of the reasons why um, some of the successes, uh, uh, the biggest successes that um, we see in terms of uh, gender relations is regards to women's uh, access to education um, and women's participation in, uh, in the workforce. Um, and, and it's bit so, but at the same time, women um, have uh, also had to bear the um, burden of uh, representation of cultural authenticity. And um, the Iranian historian uh, Afsanim Najmabadi, she has a really pithy um, way of uh, describing how sort of expectations around women's participation in the public sphere. Women have been expected to be um, modern yet modest. So in, in my work, I've, I've called this sort of the, the norm of female respectability that has uh, regulated women's activism. Um, and, and in different periods, uh, so women have either sort of worked around that uh, norm, they've both leveraged it in terms of the legitimacy it gives to women's public participation, but they've, uh, at the same time, that's often meant also a compliance with that aspect of modesty. Um, but in moments of big geopolitical upheaval, such as in the Arab uprisings, uh, when social norms uh, become destabilized, uh, as well as sort of uh, social and political structures that has given women a huge opportunity to challenge those dominant gender norms of female respectability and um, both through discourse and through their, 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 their embodied presence in the public sphere. So the actual uh, participation of so many women in the demonstrations, in the mass demonstrations that we saw 10 years ago, but we've seen since then in uh, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, Sudan, the, these are highly, these are really important also in terms of challenging uh, hegemonic gender norms. So yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, we have our last question for tonight, but uh, before we actually do that, I'd like to remind folks in the audience if you have any questions, to put them in the question and answer field. Uh, we'll do a, a last round uh, with our panelists today, uh, asking them all the, the question about what they see are the most, the, looking towards the future, what they see are the most important trends coming up in women's activism across the Levant. Uh, go ahead, Isla, uh, and don't forget your mic. Okay, thank you, Tauti. Uh, I think this is the most difficult questions when you try to answer about, you know, trends uh, in the future. And, uh, and the, the picture around you is really so bleak, you know. 
I mean, uh, since more than 150 years, we are struggling to have more freedom in our region, uh, that the people could have more say in their governance, uh, in their, you know, in setting their, uh, uh, their objectives at all levels. But it is, you know, becoming very bleak. And as I said at the beginning, the region witnessed a new wave uh, of occupation and colonialism in, in, in the daylight. So to uh, foresee some emerging trends, I could speak about, you know, uh, since the, 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 the general, uh, the space for general liberties is shrinking and very minimal. Uh, we are witnessing a new uh, wave of uh, new forms of uh, resistance uh, coming from uh, cultural and artistic uh, backgrounds. So we see new forms of expression in cinema, songs, novels, uh, performances, in whether through dance, uh, I can talk about you know, the spreading of many dance groups in, in, in Palestinian, in the Palestinian context, rappers, um, people uh, expressing their views in cinema, and it could be seen as a very important weapon, especially if we uh, follow the, uh, you know, the last uh, court of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the film Jenin Jenin that was uh, confiscated and banned by an Israeli, uh, an Israeli uh, court. And, uh, and the, the producer was uh, fined to pay something like $150,000 uh, as a fine. So I can see that a, a cultural resistance and these new forms of cultural resistance is getting so important. It gives, you know, the activist a space, you know, not to be in direct uh, challenge with the political oppressive uh, context, but it, it gives also a, a, a medium for uh, expression. The other trend I am seeing and I can talk about is a role of women in the diaspora. And uh, we, when we see the, uh, also the, the shrinking space for freedom of expression in the Palestinian context right now, how the Palestinian Authority is surveying, you know, social networks, surveying political activism, uh, surveying <clears throat> different all or, or different forms of, of expression, uh, we see that uh, uh, activists in the diaspora are playing a very important role in uh, setting the calm right for the national struggle of the Palestinian people and deconstructing the confinement of the Oslo uh, agreement and the uh, confinement of the Israeli uh, practices on uh, on the ground. 
So uh, uh, women in the diaspora uh, organize all sorts of, of activities, conferences, uh, I mean, uh, demonstrations, raising slogans, directing, you know, uh, the agenda for the national uh, struggle. So these are the main two trends I can talk about, and I wish I could talk more about more, you know, uh, positive uh, trends. Bless Islah, thank you. I pose the question to Sara now. Uh, go ahead, what you see as the most important trends coming up? Yeah, um, I'm gonna share again. Uh, oh, sorry, I went and uh, where did Sorry, sorry, I'm not the most technologically apt person. Okay, here we go. Okay, so I'm gonna start with Jordan, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna move out of Jordan. Um, in Jordan, I do think there has been a shift uh, in, the, in the recent years. Uh, in 2018, there was a huge national outcry against a new taxation law. Uh, it happened Ramadan um, and started from the unions and was really kind of all across the classes. And what we saw with, uh, with this is that women, I mean, first of all, it was women and men. So in terms of the protesters, it was, it was absolutely gender mixed. But also we did see some of the main women's rights activists on the streets. Now they were there in their individual capacity, but the reason they were there in their individual capacity is because by that time, the Jordanian state had forced all women's rights organizations to become part of the Ministry of Social uh, Development, which means that they are uh, by law not able to participate in any work that is the work of political parties, quote unquote. So anything that is vaguely political, they're actually not allowed to participate in as an organization. So there's no wonder that they weren't there in their kind of, you know, as, as groups, they would have been shut down. But they were there uh, every night. Um, uh, and they also, the women's movement and women's activists really participated in showing the effect, the gendered effect of the taxation law. Um, how it affects single women, how it affects married women, who gets more. So there was a lot of awareness raising. However, on a whole, it did not really lead to gendering the protest. So the kind of the national kind of protest of taxation in the general public, there was not was this understanding that it's also a women's issue. Moving forward in 2019, uh, the teachers union went on strike uh, and the women's movement, a lot of the main activists supported uh, the teachers union. They actually were in charge of uh, writing a document by all civil society organizations supporting the union. And this is something where the government really going kind of head to head with the union. That was a very brave thing to do, just standing out there and saying, no, we're in support of the union. But again, the demands of the union, the right to unionize, the right to have more than a minimum wage, the ability um, of education to not be privatized, to be a national right, all of that had not, has, was not gendered. Again, it was still kind of seen as a national issue. So let me contrast this a little bit with the wider Arab scene. Uh, like Nicola has said, there has been a lot, there have been a lot of protests recently. And of course, women have been at the forefront. They have become icons to these protests, whether in Sudan or in Iraq. Um, in Lebanon, we have this, um, this uh, quote, which reads, uh, economic justice is a feminist issue. 
Uh, also from Lebanon, we have Our struggle is a class struggle, not a sectarian one. So we really have a shift in discourse trying to say these national issues are also women's issues. We are reclaiming um, what has been happening. And, and, and I know some, there are some, already some questions um, about the kind of the role of imperialism and how detrimental it has been to women's movements on the ground by Francis and by others. So I think we can speak to that later on as well. And then um, as Sylvia and others have said, of course we have Falat. And Falat I think is a, is a great example of something that again is not foreign to the Palestinian scene because Palestinian women's rights activists have been struggling to say, to unite the national with, with the, the women's issue with the national in, in various forms and, and at various times in history. But Falat basically uh, appears uh, in September, 2019 after a very ugly so-called honor killing where a group of women all over historic Palestine come out and say, this needs to stop. But unlike the dominant discourse on Palestine, which loves to see, which loves to support Palestinian women when, it, when it's the Palestinian men who are the violators. And we talk about Palestinian women as if they're Norwegian women, as if the only problem that they have is that they're being beaten up by their men in the, inside the home. And like that kind of discourse, Talaat were very, very clear of saying, yes, we are, we are not going to be silent about domestic violence, but domestic violence is connected to the occupation, to settler colonialism. These are part and parcel. And so kind of really and coming together and saying that. So for example, we have here, this is, a, this is on Corona. Uh, so this is something that Talaat has, has written on Corona. They've said, you know, it is occupation and corona and the patriarchal structure that is killing us so kind of really you know bringing things together our hearts are with those who are in lockdown in violent homes um the issue is not an issue of the family it's an issue of society but again not an issue of society i mean it's it's, it's a much more complex uh, discourse that brings together forms of of marginalization but also forms of how to liberate oneself um, and then here we have, for example, Hajar and Hajar Bifre. One sort, one way of lockdown is different from, from another. So, saying that you know, you're saying to us, we should we should abide by the rules of the pandemic, um, but real prevention has to have has to have a secure home and water, and you cannot have an occupation and a settler colonial state and be secure. So it's not, and just again, bringing everything together. So, so future trends. So I think on the Arab, on the Arab scene, things are changing. In Jordan, there has been a shift. There has been a shift. Women's rights activists have started joining other activists on the streets with wider national discourses, however, uh, national struggles, uh, economic struggles too. However, the discourse has not changed. We still are talking about the national uh, without women in it. There are no women. We don't see gender when we talk about the national and we don't see the national when we talk about women's issues. The two don't meet. We talk about women's oppression and we don't see how economic marginalization, economic oppression and economic violence form a certain type of women's oppression. So there's still this depoliticized discourse that separates these discourses. And finally, we don't have the people of the, of the cause are not leading the cause. We still have uh, upper middle class women leading um, and speaking for 
other women and they're and they are be they're trying to hear but because it doesn't come from their own experience they're not able to bring in the subject positions that are necessary to understand the complexities of different forms of, of marginalization that fall so i think it, what what needs to still happen other than national gendering the national is also for those the, the majority um, to actually start leading and for it to kind of come back and you know to and and to, to kind of politicize um uh, women's issues again. Thank you. Thank you, Sara. And Nicola, any final words from you about the emerging trends? Yes. Uh, so uh, Sara made many of the points that I had also been thinking about in terms of the increased visibility of young women in these very important sort of national protest movements, uh, whether in Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Sudan, um, and also the, the increasing intersectional um, discourse of young feminists that weave together the national uh, and, and the, the personal and the political, if you like, uh, the national and the gender issues. Um, what I would, um, I guess, add is perhaps just a reflection on um, how COVID-19 will uh, impact the trajectory of women's activism. It's a bit too soon to say perhaps, but I think like major geopolitical upheavals in the past, which were a catalyst for, um, or created an enabling environment for women to challenge dominant gender norms and gender discourses, I think the potentially COVID-19 could have that um, a similar sort of uh, impact because the way in which women are bearing a disproportionate burden of care work uh, in the is a result of COVID-19. You know the increased um, amount of social reproductive work that women are having to do in the home. Uh, the the way in which uh, because of the gendered labor market, uh, many women, for example, in the nursing profession who were at the front lines of being you know, vulnerable to being infected by COVID. So COVID-19 has this potential also to um, politicize uh, things like social reproductive work that previously, perhaps for a lot of women were just seen as the norm and I think there's there's a potential there to to mobilize new constituencies of women if there emerges sort of clear discourse around these sort of issues of social reproduction and and, and division of labor within the home, which um, until now has tended to be. I mean, challenging sort of gendered hierarchies within the home has tended to be uh, something that a lot of women activists have not really engaged with uh, because of the sort of hostile, potential hostile reaction from uh, conservative elements in society. But I think, so that for me is an interesting thing to see how COVID-19 might be opening up possibilities for women to challenge gendered hierarchies within the home and open up these questions of social reproduction uh, to to politicization in a way that they haven't 
done uh, until now. Thank you, Nicola. Uh, fantastic uh, panel discussion. Uh, we are going to turn now to our audience members and the questions that they have posted. I remind uh, audience members to go to the question and answer uh, uh, icon rather than the chat to pose their questions. Now, obviously, this is going to be a bit difficult because we uh, there's a kind of uh, Zoom overload going on these days, and uh, we don't want to, uh, you know, kill our audience uh, with uh, with dragging things on too long. We'd like to take it another 20 minutes uh, if possible, but max there. And I'll try to synthesize my questions, remembering of course that we have three panelists uh, who may or may not wish to answer the questions that are out there. So uh, one question that I, I'm gonna, if, you, if the panel members give me a little liberty here to sort of play around with some of the questions and group them together. We had a question from, uh, and Annie Gregoire, who, who thanked the panelists for uh, their discussions, but also raised the question around the theme of NGOization, which seems to be fairly recurrent across uh, our panelists. Uh, she asks, your criticisms of NGOization seem possibly in contradiction to the positive act outcomes from NGO work to heal the wounds, the wounds which Sarah mentioned in her, uh, her one of her presentations. The question is, how could we have the best of both uh, politicized women's activism and social healing intervention work together? Uh, would uh, a better situation, what would a better situation look like? Uh, so I'd like to sort of field that question to all of our panelists, if possible, to hear their thoughts on the vehicle of NGOs. Is it possible to, to have positive outcomes from uh, or, or this best of both worlds? Or is it not the right uh, mechanism overall? Uh, thoughts, folks? I'll, I'll start with Islah there. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Taufi, and thanks for the, uh, the question. It is a very important question. Yes, it does seem in contradiction, but the issue is that we were talking about different generations. Uh, when we, we talked about the generation of the 40s and the 50s, we were talking about the generation of uh, so many charitable societies. And they were the dominant you know, strata of women during this time. Uh, then came you know, an era of uh, grassroots movement uh, belonging to political parties and part of the national uh, movement that uh, were very hegemonic in their way of activism, their discourse, uh, their discourse about national struggle, about women's issues, and, and uh, about emancipation at all levels, whether national uh, or gender or whatever. So, uh, and then we, uh, uh, after Oslo, uh, uh, we can speak about the generation of uh, NGOs. And this uh, elite, you know, uh, uh, leading NGOs were very hegemonic to the point that they, they, you know, they completely concealed over the discourse, the sort of activism, the achievement of the previous generations, you know. And in the meanwhile, they were not, you know, uh, uh, they they didn't prove to be uh, a new uh, efficient medium to achieve the big slogans they were carrying whether at the national uh, level or at the emancipatory 
level for uh, women in general. So if we talk about, you know, these uh, generational gaps or the generational differentiations, the picture will be maybe uh, clearer. But right now we have a very important examples of uh, charitable organization providing vital services uh, for women and the example in mind in our area is uh, in Ashil also the rehabilitation of the family that provide important services to young women uh, and uh, they provide education, health services, uh, economic opportunities, uh, etc. But the issue here is that they are not uh, presenting them, themselves uh, as, you know, um, expressing uh, uh, expressing all women's needs or all women's interests or all, you know, uh, uh, women's, you know, uh, 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 goals in general. So they are just uh, doing their work uh, voluntarily, uh, uh, quietly, efficiently, while there are other groups of women doing other, other things. The issue here is that you know, the, uh, the discourse hegemon, when you push a discourse that you are representing all women's, you know, needs and interests, uh, and in, 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 in reality, it is not the case, you see? So at least the generation of the charitable societies, now they are not claiming, you know, this uh, big goal to achieve. Um, I think... Sara, you want to jump in there? Uh, the question was initially addressed to you and you raised the issue of NGOization a fair amount in your talk as well. Uh, I don't want to prevent Nicola if she has thoughts, but we're going to Sara first. But mic on, please. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult question. I think, um, I think it's, I mean, it's very important to keep in mind the historical dimension that Uslah was talking about, but it's because it depends. Um, at some, yes, like, do we ease the suffering? It's like the same as humanitarian aid. We need humanitarian aid. If there, a war continues, there, there's a need for it. But what if humanitarian aid comes from the very people who are bombing us? And of course, again, Palestine is probably the, the kind of most extreme example in terms of, for example, European aid. That then, you know, do we, like, when the Israelis bomb a street, do we want to leave it bombed? Or do we want it fixed? But then European aid goes and fixes it, and then supports you know um, Israel uh, uh, economically and politically. So it's they're connected, and often they're, sometimes the connections aren't as clear. Um, so, for example, for this legal aid, free legal aid that is happening in Jordan, I think this is very very important. It really makes a difference in like the lives of hundreds of women and men. But uh, we need to do this together. We cannot do it alone. I think this is um, important. And again, like with Salat, it's not like they don't, they are focusing on, on domestic violence and it's important, but they discursively connect it to the rest. They constantly, they don't allow this to become an isolated project. And I think Marta talked about, asked a question about that too, kind of how can we, how can we escape that? So I do think it's very important to keep pushing discursively and not going in. Even if we say, okay, I acknowledge I need to help. This person is thirsty, they need water. But we need to say the reason they don't have water is not just because the husband took the water. No, it's the state has been pumping this water out for the last 30 years. So we, we need to make these connections. Nicola, do you want to jump in anything there or we move to another question? 
Yeah, I think we can move to another question. Sure. Okay. Well, perhaps uh, picking up where Sarah left off around the issue of discourse, uh, because it came up uh, in uh, Francis Hasso's discussion and or question, excuse me, which uh, also links with Sivayika Sivani's, uh, which has to do with trying to bring in the larger structural elements, which may uh, and their their contributions to uh, women's activism in the Levant. So Francis uh, asks about. Uh, if discourse is produced by ideological commitments, uh, 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 shouldn't this lead us to ask about national political economy and international racial capitalism and imperialism? And then Sivayika adds, wants to sort of shine particular light on, can someone elaborate on the particular role of US intervention in Middle Eastern countries and how that's affected uh, women? Uh, perhaps uh, maybe Nicola, you might want, uh, we, we start off with you because uh, you didn't say anything in the last question. Okay, thanks. So briefly on the question of how US intervention in the Middle East has shaped discourses around women's rights. Um, I mean, the, the effect has, has been very negative. There's been a backlash. The, in particular, the fact that, you know, the 2003 invasion, the US-led invasion of Iraq was done under the banner of, partly under the banner of liberating women. Um, or empowering women, uh, how that created a huge uh, potential for backlash against the notion of women's rights or women's participation in society. It, you know, in the, in the earlier work that I did with Nadia Ali, that was something that clearly came out um, that women, the, the, the challenge that women rights activists faced in trying to legitimize their claims for women's rights. Um, given the ways in which a lot of people in society um, associated women's rights with US imperialism. But looking more historically as well, I mean, colonialism, which um, is last started off this evening by talking about colonialism and its impact on women and women's rights and women activists. Um, I think the ongoing, there's an ongoing legacy um, from the experience of colonialism and the anti-colonial struggle that has uh, made the issue of women, women's rights, women's bodies, um, particularly politicized. And um, so questions around women's rights are not just um, social questions, uh, they're also questions that go to the heart of um, the bases for, um, you know, justification for regimes and states. I mean, whether that's the sectarian political system in, in Lebanon or the, the Hashemite monarchy in Jordan or the uh, regime in Egypt, you know, gender has played a really important role women or claims for women's rights or particular types of women's rights versus not other types of women's rights played a really important role in legitimizing um, geopolitical um, structures of power. So, um, and, and, that, and the root of that is, I think, in the way in which colonialism uh, saw, uh, you know, sort of politicized women and, and the situation of women in relation to um, no, you know, colonial discourse and notions of women as the markers of, um, of culture and, and so-called uh, oriental backwardness. So, um, and 
there were those ongoing legacies until today, this geopolitical logic around women's rights and women's bodies. Uh, Sara or Islah want to jump in there? Sara? Sure. Um, uh, I mean, I think this is, it's, it's a very important question. And it keeps, it's, it's, it keeps haunting us because this is, it has US and European whether you call it imperialism or what it has been detrimental for women's rights activism on the ground from the time that you know Lord Cromer famously said that the British were in Egypt to liberate Egyptian women to of course like Nicola just said the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan I mean dead women aren't liberated women they're dead you know they're occupied there's no and so and this has been it has been really detrimental um but also, and this is where, I mean, there's also, you know, women's rights activist groups have taken money from organizations that are part and parcel of these regimes. You know, go, the World Bank is a big donor and a lot of women's rights activists don't have a problem taking money from them. So there also, there is a, and, and that is what a lot of people on the ground say, well, you, look at you, you're, you know, and this is where the rift of between the popular movements and women's movements often is, is justified. Uh, but I think there's another thing, which is the there's a, a wider discourse in which there is this idea that women are more oppressed in the Muslim and Arab world than anywhere else. And that, you know, the United States or the UK or anyone has a right to kind of tell us, you know, how to liberate women when actually when you look at the numbers, it's this, if you look at femicide, intimate partner violence, the highest numbers are in the United States and the United Kingdom, not in the in the Muslim Middle East. So why do you come here and start telling us, you know, how not to kill our women when you have the same problem? And I think, again, here we need to also ourselves as people working on the ground reclaim and say, I'm sorry, no, if you want to work with me from the United Kingdom or the United States, let's do a joint project where we do a comparative project where we see how this is here and this is there so that because the focus on our society, it almost leads you to think that this is a problem that's particular to here, where it's not. And this, I think, also kind of connects to what Islah was saying about solidarity and who you work with. It's not about, yes, now, now there's a lot of amazing work between Black Lives Matter, Native American activists, um, South African activists, Palestinian activists, and it's that kind of solidarity, seeing how these systems of oppression are similar and how they can be resisted with the diversity I think that we should be working on um, and really kind of that kind of internationalism, not the internationalism of the kind of the globalized imperial machine, so to speak. Great. Uh, Islah, you have thoughts on that? Uh, just a few uh, ideas about, you know, uh, how U.S. interventions, whether in Iraq or in Syria, uh, and European uh, also intervention uh, in, in Libya, how the infrastructure of the post-independence, you know, uh, political elites were uh, completely destroyed. Uh, when we look at Syria or Iraq and the level of education that was given to young, uh, young girls, you know, and how the uh, 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 level of, uh, of, of literacy was uh, almost, you know, uh, bridged. Uh, how, you know, uh, now uh, this, the, this destruction of basic uh, services, whether at the level of health or education, 
is now going back at least uh, 30 years or more. So this is affecting, you know, all level of, of activism. We, we cannot really uh, uh, talk about women's rights when some basic and fundamental rights to education and, uh, and health uh, are, are not uh, available anymore. So this is just one of the aspects that brought back uh, women to suffer from a disease or from a lack of education that you know, uh, many, uh, many struggles, you know, uh, managed to achieve, uh, to achieve in the post-independence uh, state. So uh, they are bringing us back uh, in time. And in the meanwhile, they have the, uh, uh, the hypocrisy to claim that we are here to liberate uh, women and uh, give 25% uh, of quota for Iraqi women in, in, in the parliament or 50%, I don't know where. So this is just uh, a very contradictory uh, kind of uh, discourse and a total hypocrisy that unfortunately some women's organization are buying and you know doing some activism uh, around so we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, you know uh, not look at the bigger picture of how the uh, uh, us intervention and european intervention uh, brought back the region to the beginning of the 20th century uh, and this uh, conflict of the uh, over the resources and the wealth uh, of, of, of the region. Thank you, Islah. Um, I'm going to jump to one question here, for, uh, a couple of questions on Jordan that are coming up and uh, given one that we have- One on Gaza. Uh, there is also one on Gaza, okay. Uh, okay, does anyone want to, okay. Sure, Islah asked for the Gaza, why not? <laughs> uh, go ahead. The question is, can you please say something about the status of women's movement in Gaza? And, I'm, uh, and I think uh, I know why she wanted to uh, have that question asked, which is good, which is really the question of uh, uh, the particular role of, well, there's many things to say there. I'll let Islah take it away. Uh I was writing, uh, I wrote a paper a few months ago about uh, the two ministries in the West Bank and in Gaza. And uh, I concluded in this paper that women are uh, deeply involved in, uh, in deepening uh, the split between West Bank and Gaza uh, at all levels. And uh, gender was one of the uh, factors that was used to deepen this uh, schism between both uh, areas. So to talk about women's movement in Gaza, we are talking about the general union uh, of Palestinian women controlled by Fatah. There are so many uh, NGOs that uh, all, almost all agreed uh, with the donors that they will not fund anything related to Hamas in, in Gaza. So they were in a way complicit uh, with the uh, uh, so-called international community to marginalize the democratically elected uh, Palestinian leadership in the West Bank and Gaza. 
the same thing happened, of course, in, 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 uh, in the West Bank, when, uh, when local uh, councils uh, uh, elected, uh, uh, won by elected women from uh, the Islamist movement Hamas, were not were boycotted and uh, they were uh, refused to get any sort of support, whether technical or funding, to run their uh, councils. Going back to the women's movement, so we are talking about the General Union of Palestinian Women totally under the authority and the control of Fatah uh, organization. Fatah, of course, is actively, uh, is, is, is very active in uh, marginalizing and weakening the Islamists in, in, in Gaza. So uh, we, we can say that the General Union of Palestinian Women is an exclusive club for nationalist, secularist uh, women uh, in Gaza. Uh, we are talking about the Ministry of Women's Affairs when it was under the uh, uh, authority of Hamas that uh, they tried to reach out to uh, other women's uh, groups and they were not allowed. Uh, they wanted to be part of the coalition of 1325 and they were not allowed. They were wanted to be part of the coalition uh, of combating uh, violence, domestic violence or whatever, and they were not uh, allowed. Of course, they wanted to be part of that because uh, it opens up new venues of uh, resources and, and, and training uh, for them, but they were not uh, allowed. So the latest is that uh, with the nomination of a new women's minister, minister in the West Bank, who is from Gaza, but very active, uh, uh, you know, in, in Fatah, uh, yeah, the, the situation was whether to have two, <laughs> two ministries in Gaza representing women, one headed by the Palestinian Authority and the other was uh, headed by Hamas. And of course, uh, Hamas decided to dissolve uh, this uh, entity and uh, get the cadre, uh, around the 20 cadre, women cadre, uh, to get them, uh, uh, you know, working in other uh, ministries. So we are talking now about uh, 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 a women's movement, if we can talk about a movement that is represented by the uh, General Union of Palestinian Women, which is a very inactive kind of organization, and there's so many NGOs as I described them before. Great, thank you, Islah. So I'll, I'll take the questions to Jordan, to both Nicola and Sarah. Uh, Curtis Ryan asks about, uh, especially after the 2018 protests in Jordan and the 2019 teachers strike, to what extent do you think the state's reaction itself has been gendered? And to what extent has the current difficult climate affected women activists even more harshly or more adversely overall? Somebody else, Reem Jabi, also had the question uh, around Jordan. One observation in Jordan is that both men and women who were active during the 90s are not there anymore. Uh, her observation, I'm not sure if it's correct. Uh, where are they now? And where are the men who used to support gender equality? Sara and Nicola, your thoughts? Should I go first? Go ahead, Nicola. Go oh, ahead. Both are good questions. Both are very important questions. Um, so, uh, I mean, definitely um, 
state responses to uh, political activism, uh, state repression is always gendered. Um, and and through, through the history, particularly uh, in Jordan, there's been always um, a use, uh, you know, I think Laurie Brand uh, discusses this in her work uh, on, on Jordan and Frances Hasso as well on her work on Jordan and Palestine. You know, the, the use of um, this norm of female respectability that I, I, I talked about earlier um, as a way of, sh of, of shaming women, of discrediting uh, women's activism. So calling into question um, women's re reputation in order to um, uh, undermine or discredit her, her activism. Um, uh, and of course, the teachers union is a heavily, um, I mean, it's made up heavily of women. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the repression of the teachers union, which I have to be honest, I don't really understand what has gone on exactly, not being able to have been in Jordan recently. But uh, of course, that's going to have, um, I think, important uh, repercussions for not women's rights activism, but for the activism of those sorts of women in, uh, in labor movements who are um, you know, what, wh whose, whose activism is around sort of workplace issues. Um, the issue, the, where, where did the men go who, who support gender equality? I think um, from my uh, research, there was very few of those men. Um, they were always um, a, a minority and, and, and the problem has been that in general, Although I think if you go back to the 50s and those radical nationalist movements in the 1950s, gen, uh, women's rights was actually part of the political agendas of those radical nationalist movements. And it's, I think it's also interesting to see how with the passage of time, women's rights dis largely disappeared from the political agendas, at least the sort of like um, political manifestos of um, political parties so it just goes to, it shows you again just how the idea of sort of progress in women's rights is really um, problematic that whole notion because in many ways political uh, groups in the 1950s had a more radical agenda than say groups in the 1990s or early 2000s Great. Go ahead, Sara. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, uh, Curtis, your question is very, very important because, of course, the state, I mean, on the one hand, the Jordanian state likes to see itself as promoting women's rights, as being, you know, this modern state. Uh, but on the other hand, when it comes to protests and, and, and suppressing protests, it uses the worst type of gender stereotypes. So in the in the popular movement, as as you know, Kurt, it's like the there's this whole you know uh, 2011 2012 women activists were targeted by the Secret Service, where they were um, there were pictures taken of them and then changed and then sent to their parents, telling the parents that they have been like engaged in like sexual activities, like really trying to harass these women activists, getting them out, trying to induce quote unquote honor crimes, etc. This was actually one of the strategies of the state. Um, and now with the teachers, 
uh, I mean, the way the women, female teachers have been, have been targeted as well um, in uh, oppressing them, going into female, into women's, um, uh, to uh, girls' schools. Um, uh, and then there's the electronic crime law as well, which, you know, you have these trolls kind of harassing certain women's rights activists and also others. I mean, this is, this is about, about everyone who's kind of in the opposition. But I think this has, especially the electronic crime law, has really pushed women from middle classes and upper middle classes to feel affected themselves because now they have been, you know, targeted. Um, but I think at the, at, at the root of it is, of course, this whole, again, this, this idea of modernity and the, the, on the one hand, wanting the state wanting to be modern, wanting to be advanced. And one of the big things that the state has used is this idea that, you know, we are modernizing and we're modernizing through our women, but then at the same time, we are modernizing in everything but our women. It's, we are allowing men and uh, to stay real men by allowing, you know, not changing the personal status law, not, you know, because if we change that, you know, this is when the backward people of Jordan would go and, you know, revolt if they weren't allowed. And, then, and it goes and it, it, of course, merges into this discourse of, you know, they're not, they can't rule themselves. They're not able to be democratic. They are able. So the, the, there's, gender plays a very important role here in kind of eliciting certain responses then saying, see, the general public is backwards. See, they're oppressing women, but then also appeasing and like pushing through everything, but then not pushing it through, through anything in terms of, you know, in terms of gender. Um, and, uh, and also, but also again here, the women's movement plays into this because the state has often been very successful in kind of making the, like, you know, Joseph Masad has shown, making the kind of the ruler govern, the, the other, the tribal other, the, that what the woman, the, the liberated woman feel fears the most. So I am worried about this person from the governorate. I'm worried about his patriarchy, his tribalism. And therefore I align myself with the state against this potential patriarchal oppressor. So we really need to be careful because um, it's, uh, it's, it's really worth where you discursively things are at. Great. Okay, uh, we are coming up on 10 minutes to two hours of this uh, session going on. So I am very conscious of uh, Zoom fatigue, but with that said, I will try and get two more questions into our panelists those that are as most cut, uh, cross-cutting as possible. Uh, the first one is gonna is a rather pointed question from Reem Uthman, who says, very great points, very enlightening. My question is, what is the alternative to donors such as the World Bank and other big ones that most NGOs depend on in light of the lack of Arab regional slash local funding? If an NGO is able to take the money and design its programs in line with what the context requires with minimal control by the donor, what is the issue with taking the money? Islah. I think, you know, uh, when we see or examine the, 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 the funding strategies in our region, we realize that it's impossible to do anything without getting funding. But if we go back, you know, to the history of activism, Someone was asking about the history of activism in the Muslim societies. If we go back to the uh, history of activism, the recent history of the Palestinian women's movement, they never got funding from donors, you know, but they, uh, they, they managed to do huge kind of, you know, 
interventions at all levels, whether in refugee camps or uh, uh, or in other places, how they were uh, relying on voluntarism, you know, voluntary work and donation from the people. I remember that, you know, we participated many times in making jaddara, I mean, very simple kind of dish, and we used to sell it to, to collect money. And it used to be big money, you know, enabled us to do lots of other uh, things. The same thing, you know, for women in refugee camps in Lebanon. And in the uh, older uh, history, uh, 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 you know, uh, Awqaf, uh, this kind of uh, properties donated for the public good was used to do so many other things, hospitals, uh, bridges, uh, 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 public water uh, tapes, you know, Sabil, uh, and so many other things. So in our history, whether old or recent, we have so many examples of different kind of activism we used to do relying on our own financial resources. Thank you, Islah. Uh, Nicola or Sara, any words there? Uh, Sara, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think we really, I mean, we've been so jailed by this NGOization that we can't think outside it. Uh, why do we need funding? To, usually revolutions aren't funded. That doesn't mean that they're easy. Of course, you need money. I'm not saying it, but this idea that I somebody is going to pay me for me to liberate myself. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen like that. Uh, and I think we need to get out of this. This is um, it, it, there's a fundamental problem. If I'm thinking that I will, you know, my in in a complex way but my oppressor is going to give me money so i can like then fight against them no i'm allowed to do something in a very small way so that the structures stay the way they are and that, i think that's a part of the problem and i think we need we really need to start thinking outside we need to discursively think outside this kind of that it's not about different types of development but different develop there's an industry there which benefits certain people, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and that industry, the, the amount of money that actually goes to people in need is minuscule of, compared to the money that, you know, the expats come and are paid and, you know, so there's a lot, I mean, the, the, the very interesting research on like, you know, how much of, you know, USA dollar, you know, how much of it goes to the supposed person. And, in, in need, if, if, if at all. So I think the important, the important thing is wh why do we think that this is something, liberation, unfortunately, doesn't happen through somebody paying you. It would be great if it did, but it doesn't. So I think we need to rethink it, especially if we're, we're thinking about fighting structures. Thank you, Sara. Nicola, your work, uh, what, what would you say to the question that Riem asked? The way I would look at it is that actually Western aid is, um, it, it's there to make the West feel better. It's about making the West um, give this image of moral superiority um, and enlightenment, um, when in fact the, the whole, if you think globally about the way in which, um, you know, the, 
the world is is structured and um, the inequalities within it so much of those inequalities go the root of those are in the emergence of um, Europe um, and and slavery and colonialism and you know so um, for me there's also this sort of cultural discursive element of um, Western aid um, and, 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 and therefore, if you accept that money, then in the way you're accepting that whole history behind why the West gives that money. Thank you, Nicola. And our final question for tonight uh, will come from uh, Miriam Aurar, who asks a question uh, that relates to international solidarity between women, gendered class networks, and whether there are examples in your cases that showcase the infrastructure of solidarity across different MENA contexts. Uh, I'll start with you, Islah, and then work back to Nicola again. Go ahead. Uh, of course, in the history of the Palestinian women's movement, we can talk about lots of uh, solidarity with international uh, groups, whether in the Democratic Union of Women, and women, Palestinian women, in solidarity with other women played a major role in Mexico City Conference, Women's Conference in 1975, to condemn Zionism as a form of racism. And women managed to do that and to influence public opinion at that time. In Nairobi too, uh, I mean, uh, um, a solidarity group with the Palestinian women were something uh, very old and very uh, efficient at many levels. But unfortunately, after Oslo, this solidarity was weakened. Uh, it showed a bit of strength uh, during the first Palestinian uh, uprising, um, 87, uh, 90, 91. But after that, and uh, after that, I can say that it was uh, a bit weakened. There are uh, other forms of solidarity between women, I could say at the official level, within the women's uh, organization belonging to the Arab League. And even though we are laughing at that, but sometimes, you know, when it comes to legal reforms or, or uh, influencing policies, sometimes it is useful. Uh, to rely on another example in another Arab country that is similar to us and they changed their policies or they changed their laws. Uh, but I think uh, we have a weak point when it comes to uh, be in solidarity with other uh, groups, uh, especially in the South. Uh, we have managed through the BDS movement to re-establish contact with uh, women in South Africa and uh, in Cuba and in other parts of the world, but uh, it is uh, not as the movement, the solidarity movement uh, during the 80s and the 70s. Great. Sorry, have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I was thinking this is, this is I mean, I have to do much, much more research to actually be able to answer it uh, properly. I mean, we have some people with us, like Abdurazzaq Fikriti, who can speak to this much more. I mean, the things that are coming to mind now, 
I know there is there is work right now being done between, like I said, Black Lives Matter um, and Native American activists and Palestinian activists. I haven't done the research. I actually don't know the details. Uh, but I also know, for example, in Jordan, I know that independent media outlets, and Lina Gelat was here earlier, um, uh, have, have been doing a lot of great work across uh, Jordan, Syria, Palestine, and Lebanon, uh, working together, trying to kind of bring out voices. Um, uh, Musawa is doing this in terms of kind of uh, gender and Islam across, across the Islamic world and the diaspora and bringing together. So there, um, and of course, like Islam just said, BDS, but there, I'm sure there's more, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, but it's a great question. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna give the last word to you, Nicola, uh, particularly because your book, which just came out, uh, deals with the question of embodying geopolitics and as well. So it's both temporal as well as, uh, uh, geographical and the question had to do with international solidarities. So uh, take it away. I think Islah and Sarah both touched on the main things that I would point to, which is that, of course, during the, let's say, the heyday of third world solidarity, um, there was um, a lot of solidarity between uh, activists, you know, through look, the 70s, 60s, 70s, um, even in the 50s at the state level. Um, there, yeah, so we see lots of examples of solidarity and, and also not just, and I guess that also the solidarity had a very important performative effect within um, sort of non-aligned movements, um, you know, their, their claims to legitimacy as well. And Obviously, what we see now in the, across the Arab region uh, since the end of the Cold War, if not before, is um, a you know the what um, uh, Vijay Prashad calls the end of the third world. I mean, the third world solidarity is no longer a political project in the way that it was. Um, but obviously, you know, Islah and Sarah both mentioned other types of examples of solidarity. I think it's a, there's a real challenge though to break down the, the geopolitical barriers between people within the region, between the region and, and other parts of the world. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, I don't want to end on a negative point, though. Um, but but let, let's say there's a lot of instant, you can point to a lot of instances within the region where there is actually, instead of solidarity, there's actually competition for resources, or there are um, geopolitical considerations that are not just state considerations, but are also very much tied up with people's subjectivities. Um, you know, we only have to think about, for example, the way in which the Kurdish struggle has been sort of completely sidelined, I think, in a lot of so the solidarity, other types of solidarity in the region. So, I mean, that's maybe spinning it in a rather negative way to end the um, seminar, sorry. Uh, but thank you for everybody's really great questions. And I'm sorry that we've not been able to answer everything. Absolutely. I'd like to thank all of our panelists tonight who were able to provide a very detailed, nuanced, informative, uh, analytical discussion. And uh, again, I'd also like to uh, apologize to those who may have asked questions 
it, it's obviously quite a difficult thing to do it with three different people with such a short amount of time. I did my best and hopefully, we, but I believe the discussion sort of really brought a lot, out a lot of uh, interesting stuff. So thank you as well as audience members, you're also participants. I now hand off to uh, Dr. Carol Palmer, who is the head of the Council for British Research in the Levant to sign us off. Thank you, Carol. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Tawfiq Haddad, for uh, your wonderful uh, chairing. And um, this has been a real pleasure. And, I, and uh, my highlight, I think, actually, of 2021 so far. Um, so thank you all uh, for such a totally engrossing um, uh, two hours. Um, it's really been very wonderful. And um, I know Nicola, I have a pleasure to know Nicola Pratt and Sarah Ababne, but for me it's been a particular pleasure to be uh, to see and meet, uh, albeit digitally, Dr. Islah Jad. So thank you so much for all of your contributions and um, and a really thought-provoking. It's uh, raised. A, I'm going to think about this for a very long time, and I'd also like to again thank all of the audience who've been with us and those who particularly stayed with us <laughs> to this point. Um, thank you very much, everybody. And um, it's traditionally, I would now say, um, please join our mailing list. Please, uh, uh, please stay in touch and watch out for future events. We've uh, been quite blown away by the response to this one, and um, we hope to follow up in future. Thank you again to everybody. So good night. Stay safe. Stay well. <laughs>